from the University of Virginia's Karsh Institute, this is Democracy in Danger. I'm Siva Vadianathan. Will Hitchcock is away this week. This season, we've been obsessed with structural impediments and threats to American democracy, specifically the U.S. Constitution itself. As we've explored so far, the Constitution's 18th century diction and principles have led us to a state of judicial tyranny. Federal judges and Supreme Court justices appointed by two presidents who lost the popular vote have led a movement to gut the government's ability to limit pollution, to restrict the sale and possession of automatic weapons, and to protect voting rights, all policies with widespread popular support. Meanwhile, the Constitution provides for a Senate that deeply skews electoral representation, giving outsized power to states with very small populations, and it leaves congressional districts in the hands of the state legislatures, where gerrymandering has gotten out of control. All of these issues will see play out in next month's midterms as Democrats try to hold on to a thin margin of control in the House and in the Senate. Well, today I have with me two scholars who have written about different ways the Constitution and the American political system more broadly undermine democracy. And they both have some ideas about what to do about it. From New York University, I'm joined by Melissa Schwartzberg. She's a political scientist who has written and taught extensively on the history and theory behind democratic institutions. Melissa, welcome to Democracy in Danger. Thank you so much for having me. And we also have Joseph Fishkin with us from the law school at the University of California, Los Angeles. Joey's newest book, co-authored with William Forbath, is called The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy. And full disclosure, Joey and I go way back. In fact, his mother, Shelley Fishkin, was my dissertation advisor. Joey, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Siva. It's really wonderful to be here with you. Great. Well, Melissa, I'd like to start with a question for you first that might help ground this conversation. One of the first things we learn about democracy in grade school is the words Greek origins, rule of the people, right? And in Western thought, we're often taught to tie democracy, perhaps improperly, back to ancient Athens. So tell us a bit about Athenian democracy, what it looked like, how it changed, how it compares to the 21st century practice. Thanks for the question. So one of the most important things that people tend to know about Athenian democracy was that it was a direct democracy in contrast to the representative democracies that we have today. So that's one basic distinction between Athenian democracy and contemporary democracy. For our purposes, one of the most interesting points is that even in ancient Athens, there was what we might refer to as a hierarchy of norms. And one point about constitutionalism, perhaps the defining element of constitutionalism, is that there's a hierarchy of norms. There are some norms that are harder to change than others. So the Constitution is supposed to be foundational in certain respects, and it is made more difficult to amend in part for that reason. And then there's ordinary legislation, which is subject to what we might think of as an easier mechanism. And the same was the case at least in the 4th century of Athens. In the 5th century, all norms, however significant, were subject to relatively easy change. But one of the worries that emerged 
at the end of the 5th century was that, in fact, it made it too easy for the assembly to vote to turn itself into an oligarchy to vote itself out of democracy. Now, of course, that happened under duress. There's a long, complicated story about how that was able to happen. But one of the things that I would really want to press is that in the fourth century, we might think that the response would have been, okay, so let's take the most important democratic norms and make them utterly sacrosanct. And that is resolutely not what the Athenians did. The Athenians, it is true, made certain norms harder to change, but they didn't make them permanently entrenched. They didn't make them perfectly sacrosanct. And they had that mechanism available to them for really narrow strategic purposes. And I think that insight, the idea that entrenchment, these norms that in principle at least were formally unavailable for change, is used in really specific strategic ways, is something that has kind of fallen out of the contemporary understanding of what entrenchment is supposed to do. Right. And do you think that would be useful for us to recapture? I do think that it's helpful to think about what is the aim of constitutionalism? Whose interests is it serving? And why? And under what circumstances might we think that backing off to a certain extent on this very entrenched version of constitutionalism might, in fact, enable a wider set of interests to be satisfied? Well, that's interesting, right? For whom does the Constitution work, right? So, Uh, Joey, hasn't that kind of been the central question of the Constitution since its drafting, since the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists went at it, right? Whose interest does this document serve? Is it going to serve the debtors? Is it going to serve the creditors? Is it going to serve the slaveholders? Is it going to serve free labor in non-slave states, right? Is it going to serve the capital interests, is it going to serve the workers in the 1930s? Uh, So that seems to be an interesting way to frame how we got the Constitution we have. But when I say it like that, that doesn't sound like what we learned in high school about our Constitution. We were taught to think of the expansion of the Constitution in terms of rights. We were taught about an expanding collection of rights that we, the people, are grabbing and securing through our Constitution, through constitutional interpretation. But you and Willie Forbath, in your new book, want to return to that question. You want to re-inject political economy. You want to uh, get left liberal views of the Constitution to be much more expansive beyond rights-based deliberations. Uh, you know, am I getting that right? Is is this the story you're trying to tell? So uh, this is a terrific rich question. I agree with you that the question of whose interests does the Constitution serve goes back all the way to the beginning. And you're describing not only the debates at the founding and debates about constitutional design, but you're describing a century and a half at least of our constitutional politics. Fights in politics with elections, campaigns, arguments to the people, Uh, about how we should interpret the Constitution. Does the Constitution so protect property rights and contract rights that we can't have a new deal? We can't have social security, labor law, and all of those things. That was one view of the Constitution. It was held by one set of political interests, and it was held by the justices of the Supreme Court 100 years ago. Or is the Constitution actually 
built on a democratic political economy where we have to have political and economic power more widely distributed to the many and not held in the hands of the few. That was the view that a long tradition of Americans stretching actually from some at the founding through the Reconstruction Republicans, through FDR, made that case. And, you know, in the New Deal fight, that case ultimately won out, but it won out through politics. And so liberals, at least, have sort of learned to view the Constitution as something that courts interpret and courts use highly entrenched bits of constitutional law to protect people's rights. And of course, that happens. And sometimes that continues to happen today. You have, you know, same-sex marriage in part through that mechanism. But that way of thinking really obscures constitutional politics. You know, the right never forgot that constitutional politics happens through elections and through campaigns and not just through courts. But liberals sort of learned a different way of thinking that it is now time for them to discard because given the present, the sort of crisis you started out with about our right-wing court uh, that's entrenching kind of minority rule by the Republican Party, there's a real problem with the kind of liberal view that the Constitution is this legal document to be interpreted by courts. Right. And as you said, like conservatives have never given up on this idea that politics and economics are central to what the courts are supposed to do. And their project, and it's taken 100 years, has been to undo many of the liberal victories on that front that were established starting in the 1930s. Uh, and uh, and then, you know, they, they suffered a series of losses, um, first in terms of political economy, and then later in terms of these rights-based interpretations. And it seems to me that, like, um, the liberals had such a winning streak that they started um, taking it for granted and forgetting about cases like Lochner versus New York. And, 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 and this is this is a, a case that you know everybody who studies the Constitution deeply uh, understands was central to a turn in the court. Can you briefly explain what that case was about and why we should not forget it, why it should be as ingrained in our popular sense of the Constitution as Brown or Roe? Sure. Well, Lochner and the whole set of cases from that moment 100 years ago were about judges imposing a strongly held by by them and by their political allies view that the constitution protects liberties of individuals to contract with each other uh it protects against regulations like wage and hour laws laws that set the maximum hours of bakers in New York, that was the case, or of minimum wage laws, all of the sort of worker protections that we might want to build in order to build a more democratic uh, political economy in an industrialized society. The view of those judges was the Constitution prohibits this. Now, the interesting thing to me about that is this was not a view grounded in constitutional text, particularly. It was a view that was built on 
arguments about the kind of political economy that the Constitution requires. And at that time, that's the kind of argument both sides were making. And so when progressives made their rival arguments, they said, you know, just as Jefferson thought you needed to divide up lands and have small landholders so that they could be democratic citizens, we think today in an industrialized, more urbanized America, we need unions and we need labor regulations like these wage and hour laws if we're going to have a democratic political economy and ultimately a democratic society. Uh, you know, I think part of why we can't make those arguments as easily anymore, why we forgot how to make them on the progressive left, is because they don't sound like the kind of constitutional argument you would take to court. Mm. And they're not. You know, courts can't invent antitrust law, labor law. It's legislatures who do this. But legislatures do this work for constitutional reasons and in the name of constitutional provisions that legislatures to politics has a role in interpreting. Right. So, Melissa, uh, how does all of this relate to this idea of entrenchment that you brought up earlier? Like, can you go deeper on that? Um, help me understand where entrenchment works in this whole plot. Well, I would say that Joey's account is basically right, but I would say that part of the problem, in fact, the main problem, lies with just how difficult it is to change the Constitution. And when a Constitution is effectively unamendable, as the American Constitution is, it means that the primary locus of constitutional interpretation is not going to be the legislature. It's going to be through the courts. And further, although I'm very sympathetic to Joey's argument, of course, the other problem is legislative sclerosis. It is very hard because of the filibuster to enact law. And so that puts an enormous amount of pressure on the judiciary and what ends up being justiciable by the courts. Right, right. And that's not constitutional, right? The, the question of the filibuster is a, is a local rule in the Senate, but it is what you've written a lot about, a supermajority idea. So the U.S. Senate basically stops itself from doing a whole lot of things that it otherwise might want to do and that the American people might want to have happen by virtue of demanding 60 votes to even bring up a piece of legislation to the floor. Uh, you, you brought up the legislative sclerosis. Can you connect the question of the supermajority, these rules by which we operate certain institutions to the notion of sclerosis, which, you know, a lot of people would argue has virtue in a republic, but but you you have real doubts about the use of a supermajority. I do, mostly because it introduces this very strong status quo bias. Mm -hmm. So, of course, the harder that you make it to legislate, the more likely it is that existing norms are going to persist. And so, allegedly, the filibuster promotes consensus, it promotes bipartisanship. Really, it means that a minority is capable of blocking legislation that is supported even by a pretty substantial majority. And so, as a result, it means that especially important legislation just can't get a toehold. And again, in response to Joey's observation that it means that liberals have really focused their attention on the courts, not just liberals, but conservatives as well. This is why, again, the stakes are so very high with every Supreme Court appointment. It's that, in a way, the court has become the primary game in town for political decision-making. So were legislation to be made somewhat easier, it might take some of the pressure off of the court. 
Of course, there's still going to be the problem with the deeply entrenched constitution, but it might make it more plausible. There might be a better locus for the types of arguments that Joey, I think, rightly wants progressives to be making. And we've seen two areas in which the supermajority problem in the Senate has gone away or the Senate has taken away its own supermajority rule. One is with this reconciliation practice, right, where you're dealing with an adjustment to the budget and you can pass legislation that is really broad, like what we just saw with this massive piece of legislation that addresses climate issues and addresses uh, uh, various public health issues and and so forth. And it's all under this thing called the Inflation Reduction Act. And, and we've also seen the filibuster go away for judicial appointments significantly, right, which allowed for a whole lot of these uh, justices over the past four or five years to come in with perhaps less scrutiny than they would have otherwise endured in Senate confirmation. Now, what if, right, because we're about to have a, a, an election in which the fate and control of the House and the Senate are up for grabs, what if Democrats increase their Senate majority by one or two or three votes and are able at that point to change the filibuster rule significantly enough to pass under the regular calendar many important pieces of legislation, are we likely to see a blowback from the courts reasserting their supremacy, reasserting their say over things? Uh, Or are we likely to see the court say, you know what, we might have a legitimacy problem going forth if uh, if we keep overruling what the Senate is going to be passing. The first thing. <laughs> I don't know if I could jump in here. Please do. Yeah. So I, I agree with Melissa that the sclerosis in uh, the current super closely divided Congress has empowered the court even more. But an important ingredient in how this court became what it is today is the liberal reluctance to challenge the court through legislation and through politics. It's a legacy of the reaction to Brown versus Board where conservatives in the South attacked the court and liberals found themselves defending it and saying, no, you just have to obey the court. That's who decides what the Constitution means. Today, that outlook has become an utter disaster for the left because I expect that with a couple of more senators, Democrats could enact quite a few important reforms to protect democracy and also to protect workers' rights. Uh, and to protect abortion rights and various things like that, I expect a absolutely intransigent right-wing court to see how far it can go before being seriously challenged by Congress. And at the moment, the answer is quite far. That's an answer that needs to uh, change through progressives in Congress, once they have a solid majority, rediscovering some of the tools, some of the checks and balances that exist in our system right. for uh, for checking uh, a runaway court. Melissa, do you see it the same way? I'm really sympathetic to what Joey is suggesting. I'm wondering whether or not the focus ought to be on the left or, frankly, on liberal law professors. Hmm. So I think it is true that the left has cheered many victories, Obergefell, for instance. 
in recent years. But I think there has been an, um, an ingrained suspicion of at least younger leftists against the court. And I think this has been coming for a while. There's been an, a desire to have more political engagement, more legislative action, rather than relegating questions of rights to the judiciary. That said, one temptation on the part of law professors, I think, has been to shore up the court mm -hmm. because, in a way, it's the economy of esteem. Some of it has to do with their own pedigrees. Very many of them clerk for the court and hold the justices for whom they served in very high esteem. And some of it is also a concern about being too critical of the court and having that have negative repercussions for their institutions or for their students in terms of their own capacity for advancement. So I think it's really hard often for law professors to challenge the court the way I think that they ought to. This is not all law professors at all, um, but I do think that there are these institutional incentives for the people who are best situated to, to call the court out to hold their fire. Well, recently on Democracy in Danger, we interviewed one of those, not all law professors, uh, your colleague at New York University, Chris Sprigman. Uh, and he's written extensively about the idea that Congress has the constitutional power to limit the jurisdiction of federal courts, the Supreme Court included. Now, Joey, you have written extensively about this political moment in the 1930s when Franklin Roosevelt faced an intransigent court and threatened to dilute the conservatives' power by simply appointing more judges, which the Constitution seems to let him do. Now, he didn't expand the court. He did lose the battle, but he kind of won the war. What do you think about Sprigman's idea? What do you think about the other ideas that might uh, perhaps limit the power of the the conservative majority uh, sooner rather than later. Yeah, great. And first, I feel like I should add my name to this hashtag: not all law professors. Uh, but uh, and there there may be something generational in that. Uh, younger academics and lawyers are, I think, taking a pretty different view, which is why proposals like Sprigman's have some legs. Just briefly about the 1930s, I think. There's an interesting story there about what lessons do we take. I think there's a, a mistake that a couple generations of liberals made in interpreting what FDR did as sort of, oh, that's going much too far. That's bringing too much politics into the court. We should just trust the apolitical experts on the court, kind of the way we would trust apolitical economists in the mid-20th century. Neither of those forms of trust were a good idea, and both are now breaking down. I think we need a broad range of tools. Congress needs to consider jurisdiction delaying, sort of allowing courts to eventually review some legislation, but not until it at least has gone into effect to raise the political cost to the court of taking something away from people who have already enjoyed it, or uh, Congress can enact backup provisions that say, okay, if you strike down, you know, the Affordable Care Act's uh, expansion of Medicaid, then all of a sudden we will just nationally expand health insurance for everyone through a different route. Put choices to the court, because the court is acting as a political institution, put choices to the court that are politically tougher mm -hmm. than just here's our legislation, have at it. 
we don't want the court to be in a position where they know they never have to fear public opinion and politics, no matter how far to the right of the American people they end up. Uh, those tools need to be on the table in part to threaten the court. In some ways, the ideal outcome is the outcome we got in the 1930s, where the court backed off. Um, it's not necessarily about packing the court would be great, but it might be helpful for the court to know that they don't have total impunity to interpret the Constitution any way they'd like. But of course, back in the 1930s, we had a bit of a maverick as a president who didn't care much for the niceties of judicial tradition. Now we have a 79-year-old institutionalist who was instrumental in establishing many of the norms uh, that the court has been rolling with for the past 30 or 40 years, right? So he has been very reticent uh, to entertain any of these reform packages. And we have essentially a gerontocracy in both houses of Congress. So until there is some personnel changeover, we might not actually get these ideas flowing. Now, throughout this conversation, we've been talking about tinkering. We've been talking about reforming. What do both of you think about the idea of the clean slate, of, of looking at the 21st century and saying, our challenges are so different from what they were in the 18th century? Why are we even bothering with the legacy and the vestiges of an 18th century document? Why not start fresh and write a guiding document that will help us face challenges that are existential in their threats? Climate change, infectious diseases, human migration, who gets to be a citizen, who gets to help us govern, in whose interest should we be governing? Is it safe? Is it appropriate to start fresh and ask those big questions now? Would you like to start, Joey? Sure. So I'll say, Siva, you found the question that turns me into, despite my not all law professors hashtag, into something of a conservative sounding curmudgeon. <laughs> You've done it. Uh, and the reason is, I think Americans are attached deeply to a kind of vision of our Constitution as some expression of our deepest values, mm -hmm. even though we disagree incredibly deeply these days about what those values are. If we were in a moment where solid majorities, super majorities of Americans agreed on the need for revolutionary change of the kind you're talking about, then I'm sure my answer to your question would sound different. But instead, we're in a closely divided country in which the kind of new constitution that half of Americans almost would want to build is not the kind that I would want to live under and the kind that the majority of Americans would want to build is not one that, you know, 40% of Americans would want to live under. So um, I think what we need to do is disenthrall ourselves with the idea of court-centered constitutionalism and come back to the idea that we can fight about the Constitution and its meaning through politics. We can get some change that way. It's true it will be incremental. It's true it will be deeply unsatisfying in a lot of respects. But it's just a much more plausible path to some sort of better constitutional future than 
throwing out the whole thing in a constitutional revolution that the vast majority of Americans don't want. Well, I, I would only point out that we were just as divided in 1789, perhaps more fervently divided when the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments went through and we got a brand new constitution. That's absolutely so right. we might actually be more unified today. I agree. Uh, in our values than we were in either of those two moments. Um, Melissa, what do you think about the tabula rasa idea? Well, like Joey, I'm pretty concerned about the notion of partisan capture. So I would love to think that we would be able to step out of history and have a moment where we were able to think really hard about what kind of community we want to live under. But it is very difficult to imagine us doing that without partisan valence. And because of that, I share Joey's view that probably the better strategy is to think about a new constitutional politics. But I think for that to happen, we would need to primarily focus on making the Constitution somewhat easier to amend. So I would be in favor of a project to revise Article 5. I would also just encourage us to try to be willing to incur the costs of engaging in constitutional change. Personally, I would begin with an Equal Rights Amendment. Right which unfortunately it seems that we're going to need to begin anew. But I think, for instance, the only way in which the right to abortion is ever going to be secure is to do so through an equal rights amendment. And indeed, that was a reason why there was such resistance to the ERA. Conservatives believed that it would be a way that women would be able to secure the right to abortion. And indeed, they raised the worry that it would involve federal funding of abortion. So that would be my preferred strategy. That's not to say that we shouldn't think more creatively about what our constitutional aspirations are. But the notion that we could have a constitutional convention that wouldn't immediately devolve the way Joey fears that it would, I think is probably unrealistic at this historical moment. Can I, can I add one point here? Please, please do. I, I feel like something that may be overlooked in some of the conversations about constitutional change today is that we do have a lot of constitutions in the United States that are comparatively easy to amend, and those are state constitutions. Mm -hmm. A much more realistic path, in my view, for securing the right to an abortion is what we are doing in California uh, at the moment, which is putting a state constitutional protection for abortion explicitly in the text of our state constitution. At the federal level, I think a statute might be a more realistic way to go, because the problem with just trying to rely on something like the Equal Rights Amendment, which I support, to protect abortion rights, is that this court would certainly interpret the Equal Rights Amendment to not protect abortion rights. And in state constitutions, there's more flexibility, there's more amendability, and there's much more of a chance to actually have some democratic contestation and fighting around the actual text of the Constitution. At the federal level, I think Congress, in enacting a statute to protect reproductive rights, can say, we are doing this because women's liberty and equality depends on it. And they should say that. And that's constitutional politics uh, in action. Yes, I would say that I agree with Joey that the strategy should be all three, that the federal statute is necessary. But I 
fear that it may be insufficient, which is why I would also support an ERA. And I also agree that the state constitution is where this is likely to be fought out. Well, uh, Melissa Schwarzberg, Joey Fishkin, thank you both so much for joining us on Democracy in Danger. Thanks so much. Thank you. Joseph Fishkin is a professor of law at UCLA, and his new book with William Forbath is The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution. Melissa Schwarzberg is a professor of politics at NYU and an expert on the history and theory of democracy. Her most recent book is Counting the Many, The Origins and Limits of Supermajority Rule. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all our sister shows. Here's a quick message from our friends. When election season rolls around, it's easy to get distracted by the candidates, the polls, and the pundits. But elections, how they're run, how they're funded, how they're covered by the media, and who votes in them, are critical to the health of American democracy. Something that you might have noticed is in some trouble right now. 2022 Midterms, What's at Stake, a series from the Democracy Group Podcast Network, will go beyond horse race politics to look at some of the deeper issues that could shape American democracy for the next two years and beyond. You'll hear from scholars and other experts from across our network of podcasts devoted to democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Subscribe to 2022 Midterms, What's at Stake, wherever you're listening right now. That's all we have this time on the show. We'll be back soon with journalist Patricia Campos Melo. She'll break down the national election just held in Brazil. Are the armed forces going to support President Bolsonaro if he disputes the results? That's anyone's guess. No one knows that. Also coming up, shows about Chile's failed efforts at constitutional reform, America's troubled asylum regime, and the history behind the FBI and its role in the executive branch. In the meantime, give us your own suggestions about what to cover. Drop a comment on our webpage. It's dindanger.org. Or tag us on Twitter, at DND Podcast. That's at D-I-N-D Podcast. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengol. Our assistant producer is Rebecca Berry. Ellie Bashkow engineers the show, and we have some fabulous interns, Ava Kretzinger-Walters, Ellis Nolan, and B. Webster. Support comes from the University of Virginia's College of Arts and Sciences. We're a project of UVA's Karsh Institute of Democracy. The show is distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Siva Vadianathan. Will Hitchcock will be back with me next time.